What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. It's Tuesday. It's an NHL night, and I have a rising star in the hockey writing sphere. He's across the the continent in uh, Canada. I feel like this is back-to-back weeks. Yeah, uh, Vancouver guys on the podcast on Tuesday nights. Brady was on last Tuesday, and he was great. And I have no worries at all that Harmon Dial is going to be just as good. He is with the Athletic Vancouver. How are you doing, man? I'm pretty good, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, so you're young and we were talking before we started recording. You are a freshman at university right now? Yes. I just graduated from high school last year. And that was, our, uh, I guess, just sort of, um, it, it sort of lined up exactly with when I really started my writing career seriously. And I sort of got the break at the same time, started uh, as a contributor at The Athletic in September of 2018, same time as I started first year of university as well. Were you writing anywhere before The Athletic or no? Yes. I wrote for a few local blogs, uh, Canucks Army, which covered the Vancouver yep, Canucks, yep. mm-hmm. um, Nuxmas Conduct, uh, Daily High Vancouver. So just in and around the Vancouver sphere and I work my work myself up and I'm at a place where I'm pretty happy where with where I'm at uh, in terms of how my writing's been going. How many times have you seen over the last decade uh, them filming Psyker Once Upon a Time in your neck of the woods? I, I got to be completely honest. I don't think I've seen it, but I have seen quite a few shows. I, I, I'm not sure if you remember, but or like if you've heard of it, but Riverdale is pretty big and mm-hmm. they actually filmed, filmed at my high school last year. So that was pretty cool. Really? Yeah. Okay. Did you see everybody there? Yeah, I actually walked by uh, KJ Appa, who plays Archie. Uh-huh. Uh, Cole Sprouse, all those guys, they were, it, it was pretty surreal moment. And yeah, it, it was, it was pretty cool. The The whole school was sort of flocking the the whole cast and, and definitely a unique experience when you think about how big the show's become. It is weird when you see stuff like that in person and you see it in the show and you're like, how are you able to make it look like that when I just walk by and it's just my high school? Exactly. Normal. Like you don't get it. Like I watched them film Anchorman 2 downtown Atlanta and they presented it as New York and me walking by and watching the fight scene. Do you have you seen Anchorman 2? No, I have not. Okay. Well, there's this like gigantic, insane celebrity fight scene. Like Will Smith makes a cameo. Like there's just every famous person essentially makes a cameo in this fight scene. It lasts like 15 minutes, but I was watching them film that and it looks insane 50 feet away. Like you're just like, this looks terrible. What are they doing? This is the most awkward way to spend an afternoon. And then you watch the big screen. You're like, oh, this worked. But I always love that they pretended that this little small, like, 100-yard park in downtown Atlanta was Central Park and got away with it. But um, now you know. So you don't have to see the movie. That's 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 it. There was just a big fight scene. That's all you need to take away from Anchorman 2. Um, but anyway, you are a hockey guy. You um, obviously write for the, the Athletic Vancouver. Um, we will talk about a few little Canucks things later on tonight. But I wanted to start uh, – it seems like the – Big talking point right now is the postseason is still weeks away. Um, 
is NHL rule changes and different people have different ideas. Greg Wyshynski on ESPN.com had a really good piece outlining his five that he would uh, change. Um, but the bigger one right now is the helmet rule. Um, what do you make so far of what they might do with uh, the helmet issue in hockey? Well, I think it's really interesting because they've adopted it at the uh, American Hockey League level in in the minors and from well, what you hear, it's been pretty successful. And actually, it was a funny story. Recently in Vancouver, we had um, a prospect, Guillaume Briesbach, come up from Utica. And, and the helmet rule, since it hasn't been adopted in, in the NHL, it made for a pretty funny moment where Briesbach's helmet came off in like his first or second game. And he immediately rushed and abandoned the play straight to the bench to grab a new helmet, even though the rule isn't actually in effect in the NHL yet. But certainly, I think from a player safety standpoint, uh, we want to protect our players, similar to similar to football. Head injuries are nothing to to scoff at, and safety is number one. And in my opinion, even if if it does take a player abandoning the play, I don't think I, I think it's worth it, given what's at stake here. Yeah, um, the most interesting thing might be like the no sucker punch rule, which I feel like would be very difficult to legislate. I, I don't know how they're going to be able to different, differentiate between whether or not something was a sucker punch or not, but the fighting stuff is going to be something that's going to be interesting over the next 50 years. If that's still just a staple of hockey or not, w- what do you think? Well, I think if you look at the rate of fights across the NHL, there's been a really sharp decline over the last 10 years. And I think we're going to get to a phase in the next 10, 20 years where you'll automatically just sort of see it phased out. I don't think you're going to necessarily need to have uh, a fighting ban and you know what I'm actually not opposed to having having fights legalized at this point because um, the the players understand at this point the consequences and ramifications and just with the way that players are being brought up in this day and age they are such a rare occurrence that I don't feel that there's a uh, necessary uh, that there's really a need to to put a hard ban on them and uh, honestly to vent out emotions my um, my opinion is i'd rather see that than a lot of the cheap shots you have and certainly i can see the argument from the other side as well but i think we're just naturally going to head to a stage where fighting it's going to become a thing of the past on its own yeah and it's interesting because it seems like this is the biggest way things change in professional sports is just like how it starts at the youth level asking major league pitchers now to adjust to a pitch clock when they've learned a certain way for 30 years is kind of ridiculous and you can understand their pushback to something like that but when you come up through the minors and they have a pitch clock and then you get to the majors it's it's an easier transition so if players are kind of learning a different kind of style of game at the youth level then obviously at some point you would expect it to trickle up into uh the nhl right yeah and i don't think that that um last i checked i don't think fighting's actually been banned in any of the junior leagues but it is. We are certainly getting to a sort of stage where I think the biggest difference is a lot of the stage fights are becoming a thing of the past. And the main reason for that is the role of the enforcer has really been diminished because teams are realizing that, A, all your players need to be able to actually play hockey and contribute on ice as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that was really really the big problem up until ten to fifteen years ago. Even as recently as as five years ago, you'd still have that designated enforcer role where a guy might play eight or nine minutes a night, and his job really was just to punch faces. And and teams realized, like the Penguins, and it's it really it was a big part of the skill um, sort of wave where teams realized that you can't really afford to have one of your twelve guys. Uh, as essentially a liability on the ice and at the end of the day winning is the obviously the first priority and and so enforcers have become a thing of the past and so players growing up in junior a lot of the times before what they could do is they they think you know I, I have to make I have to carve out some role even if it's not the most uh desirable and so they'd they'd uh, if they if they weren't the most skilled they'd sort of adopt into this enforcer type uh, role, but again, with that out of the way, you're not going to see as many uh, as many fights. But the the other thing is, I think t- teams and it, it's not it's not at a stage where people fully understand it yet. But enforcers do, at this stage, or even up until the last ten years or so, they don't really prevent 
or they, they don't really work to police the game in, in a sense. For example, you had Mark Savard's career ended by uh, Matt Cook with that dangerous headshot. Zidane Chara and Milan Lucic were on the ice, and those guys are by no means in, enforcers in the sense that they're very skilled and talented players, but those are the two of the most intimidating players in the entire NHL, and it didn't stop a player like Matt Cook from taking a cheap shot. So I think the the other realization that teams are eventually going to uh, get to get to understand is that this whole idea of pushback and policing and the deterrent factor, it doesn't really work if a player is going to throw a cheap shot they're going to throw a cheap shot and just by just by the fact that you are getting rid of the goon type of role you're not going to see as many well i'd hope you wouldn't see as many cheap shots in the future anyway so it's uh, a sort of situation where teams have re- realized that fighting doesn't really like you can't play players just because they fight and because of that the the archetype the stage fights those have really gone and become a, a thing of the past. And you're replacing it with more scoring, right? Like that's the the upside when you focus more on the on ice play and like how do we increase just the the speed of the game and things like that. Things that make turn into a slog is a lot of fighting and that kind of defensive minded effort. Um, I, I do think that if there's less fighting, even though that is part of the game, and I was at an Atlantic Gladiators game a couple weeks ago. And the, uh, which is the uh, affiliate of the Boston Bruins, but they had, the, I think there was one fight and it was like a dual fight where two different people got into it and um, two different parties, I should say. So four people total and the crowd lost their shit. Like there is still, I, I don't know if it's just because it's mildly hockey, that kind of demeanor is still different, but they've been conditioned that way. But like, I wonder how that works with the fans. Like, do fans still just, do they prefer it? We know based on what you're saying that like the, the front offices and teams and players are kind of adapting and changing, but are the fans going to be okay with it? If it just means more scoring, because scoring is up at an all time level right now, and your average chanting it's like 6.1 goals per NHL contest. And that's great because people like scoring you see in the NBA, it's, it's good for the game and more home runs. It's good for baseball and the NFL with Patrick Mahomes, like him and the Kansas city chiefs putting on a clinic along with the Los Angeles Rams. Like people like scoring, people like points, people like fun offensive production. Um, but UFC still does crazy numbers. Uh, people still like, fighting and if they're able to have their cake and eat it too i think what they would love is uh some fights every now and then and then uh six goals a game i think that's ultimately what they might want just a little bit of violence um but i i could be wrong i i don't know yeah you're you're bang on in that and there's certainly a segment of the fan base that misses that old time sort of hockey from the 80s and 90s but on the other hand like you mentioned the the game is as fast and skilled as it's ever been and that's made it extremely entertaining and i think that's one aspect of it but also like you mentioned there are still fights here and there i mean this isn't to say that fighting's a a dinosaur type of thing where you never see it or it's extremely rare it's it's still something that happens on a, on a somewhat regular basis you you might see it you might see a fight every third or fourth game depending on uh, what team you're rooting for or watching, and so uh, that's the beauty of it. Beauty of it, because not only are you seeing teams that are able to utilize more of the roster spots on skilled players. So, for example, the Toronto Maple Leafs—they've really been one of the first teams to adopt this new age, modern appro- approach to speed and skill, where they've taken what's typically been uh, a defensive or physical fourth line, and they debuted last week what was called the five foot nine line with uh i believe it was nick batan tyler ennis and trevor moore where that that line was all about speed and skill and it goes completely against the sort of preconceived notion of what a fourth line should be and it made for some entertaining hockey but at the same time there are still obviously toronto's not a team that engages in many of those contests but fights are still something that you see in the nhl so right now it is a sort of situation where fans can have their cake and eat it too it should be interesting to monitor going forward, but I think this is something that's going to take years and we'll just, uh, we'll touch base five years from now. How about that? And we'll figure out uh, what the, the stats show as to whether or not uh, finding is going down even more. Uh, but it sounds like ultimately you do believe that 
more offense is good for this league and just is it you would you like to see it go up from 6.1 do you think we're at a good number or do you think um there is a tipping point there at all well i do think there becomes a point where or where there will be sort of this is there too much offense aspect of it but i honestly still think there's room for growth and it doesn't necessarily need to come from just uh just rule change perspective a lot of it is systems-based approach so similar to how you've seen for example the nba they've they've started taking advantage of inefficiencies they've uh they've started stop relying on on the deep two-point shot and started um, relying a lot more on the three-pointer you're, you're going to want to see a lot more of that game theory applied at the nhl level too so for example right now point shots they're they're still very common in the nhl even though if you break down the numbers when you take a shot from the point there's a 1.9 percent chance that it's going to go in on average at five on five there's a 1.7 percent chance that it's going to get blocked and it's going to go the other way for a goal so really you have a 0.2 percent chance of a positive outcome and yet point shots are still an extremely common occurrence and so part of it is adapting tactically and you're seeing that on the power play as well power play scoring is as efficient as it's been since the high scoring 80s and so from a systems approach i think coaches too we're gonna see we're gonna come to see a stage hopefully within the next i hope 10 15 20 years where it's a lot more um right now coaches are really risk adverse and they tend to lean on a lot of these uh, two-way type players where they give them those labels, but they aren't actually driving positive on-ice results. And they, a lot of times it's because of intangibles. They're like theoretical glue guys. Yeah, they're theoretical glue guys. But w- once coaches come to realize that those players aren't actually driving results and you see more progressive uh, manage- management groups and how teams are constructed, you're going to see also uh, you're going to see even more skill and then on top of that uh, a sort of thing that we've talked about um i've talked about in the past again similar to the nba sort of this positionless type of sport and in the nhl i think we're quite a ways away from it but just having more more free will and and having the game be more about shape um as opposed to you're a defenseman your job is just to defend kind of thing right because right now in the nhl what you what you see is a defenseman might rush the puck up the ice and join the rush it's great but then as soon as he's he's done he's done and let's say the opposition regains possession of the puck even if that defenseman's in a position where he can continue that shift from that offensive position and forecheck from there he rushes back to cover on defense because you don't have that forward who can competently play back um, and, and defend a potential rush coming back the other way. So I think once once teams and players adapt to the idea that, hey, it's fine to have more fluidity in our game, then you'll also see more risk being taken. And once that's uh, applied, then you're going to see more scoring in that respect too. And the other thing too is, like you said, with just the way they're playing and playing styles being different and scoring, it's power plays um like i could be wrong but isn't the aren't the numbers showing that there are more um non-power play goals than ever before per game that like more teams are scoring without having to rely on the power play than in years past um i'm not exactly sure on that but i do know even strength scoring is it's definitely been on the rise in the last few years um power play that is uh, again, I just think a big, uh, big part of it is because we are seeing more speed and skill injected into the game. Um, you're having, for example, I'm sure we're going to talk about him later, a player like Quinn Hughes. Who, well, that's what I thought you were thinking of. Like that's the guy I had in mind. I thought about mentioning that. Is, is there some sort of ulterior motive as to uh, why you would like to see defensemen uh, become more uh, well, yeah, and more, uh, more risk uh oriented and pushing him up and more goals and everything else so that he can live up to his his younger brother's potential like uh even more upside there yeah and i think uh, the other uh, on the flip side what you're seeing is for example if we're talking about defensemen you're seeing that stay at home type defenseman um sort of seeing his role diminished a player like eric branson for example he would have been great 10 or 15 years ago but when he when he played with the Canucks up until the up until the point where he was traded at the trade deadline, he was a liability on the ice because he couldn't move the puck, he couldn't make 
plays transitionally. And that's becoming another thing where scouts are focusing a lot more on a player's ability as opposed to their size or their toughness. And so now that we're targeting different different player archety- archetypes, uh, you're seeing more of the Johnny Gaudreau's, the Nikita Kucherov's, um, the Braden Points. A lot of those players are thriving in the league. And, and it, it, more than ever, you're seeing small, skilled players adapt and become prominent um, parts of the NHL. And really, it's come from a shift where teams have realized that talent and skill often trumps size on its own. Yeah, and there is interesting with how certain players have talked about guys like who you're talking about, in in particular, Quinn Hughes. Um, Dylan Larkin said um, of Quinn Hughes when he was drafted, he's a great passer, maybe a Duncan Keith, but a better skater. Um, he could be a Norris Trophy defenseman with his offensive instincts. And it just seems kind of counterintuitive not to utilize a player like him, even though he is a traditional defenseman, to just not let him explore his offensive instincts and see if that could just be this other dimension for... Uh, your team and kind of had that unicorn flavor where it's like, oh, what this this we haven't seen guys like this before. Like, how do how do we deal with this? Yeah, and that's the thing. It's a big part of it is going to be uh, adaptation. When you have a player like Hughes, it, it's 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 oftentimes hard to play with a player like that because with with the way they dictate things on the ice, with the freedom with which they with which they do their magic it requires players around them to really adapt and to fill in for the gaps that they leave behind. So again, if he rushes up the ice, goes zone to zone into the offensive end for a rush chance, well, then the forwards on the team in the system need to be aware of when they need to slip back and drop. Um, His defense partner needs to be able to read where he uses positionally and communicate effectively. um, He's not going to have as much freedom as he may may have five or ten years from now when the league is more uh, used to adapting and working around these sorts of players. But from a forward's perspective, perspective, for example, that forward that's covering Hughes as he as he goes and rushes the puck up the ice, well, then that means that he's going to have to work on his defensive skills. He's going to have to work on playing a tight gap in the neutral zone. He's going to have to learn to defend from the dots, uh, from the dots and out, so that he's protecting the middle. He's going to have to work on his backward skating. And so that's also going to lead to a lot of scenarios where the flip side is you're going to need more well-rounded players. And I think that's uh, that's a big trend and big trend that you're going to see moving forward. You're going to need all-rounded players. You can't really have, in my opinion, moving forward, many players succeed that are one-dimensional or can only succeed in, in or only have one trait or, or asset at, at their disposal so again, that goes back to the big, rugged, phys- physical defenseman. He needs to be able to skate. He needs to be able to move puck. And and again, going back to the NBA, similar to where you saw a, a shift with with the pick and roll basketball, a lot of the bigs now have to be mobile. They have to be able to guard the small uh, small point guards. When you do have switches, they need to be more agile. A lot of times, they need to be able to, to knock down uh, deep threes. When, for example, uh, someone dribbles hard to the basket and they clear room. So it's going to take adaptation from players in the sense that they're going to need to be more well, well-rounded and able to fill a variety of different roles on the ice. Yeah, it should be, it should be interesting to monitor, but I think all the sports are moving in the right direction as a whole. Um, last thing on rule changes and then we'll move on. Um, would you change anything about overtime and the point system with overtime and winning and uh regulation anything like that would you adjust anything there i do not like the loser point to be quite honest with you um i agree so i can't remember off the top of my head what sort of point system there there have been a couple that have uh intrigued me but definitely i that's something that i'd want to move away from i also don't really like the shootout to be quite honest i think after the lockout right there with you yeah, after the lockout, it was brought in as something that was sort of supposed to spice up the game. And to be quite honest, it's pretty, it's lost its luster. And if you think about three on three hockey, that is just so much fun to watch. And John Tortorella and others have gone on to say, you know, let's just play three on three hockey for the whole time until we get a winner. We'll see if if there's a change in, in that respect moving forward. But as far as the actual format goes, I'd want to get rid of the shootout and then get rid of, rid of the loser point as well. 
Yeah, I'm right there with you, um, which I think I've said way too many times on this podcast tonight, but that's good. We agree. Um, the Blackhawks, a team we have not talked about tonight, but they suddenly have, maybe not even suddenly, but their offense is clicking. This is a team that we thought might be in um, cat purgatory for a while. They've obviously had a bunch of success. They had made a coaching change. Like It's been a very weird uh, time in Chicago, but... Things are looking up like how they have a bunch of uh, 100 point players now. Like what is why are the Blackhawks moving in the right direction, in your opinion? Well, I think you've really just seen the for starters, you've seen the leaders turn back the clock. Duncan Keith hasn't had the best season, but aside from him, all the veterans are really stepping up. Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane have really led the charge and they're on on pace for the for career best seasons point wise point wise. I think Kane's already at about 98 points or something in 68 games or something along those lines. Jonathan Taves is above a point a game, which again, he's never been in his entire career. And that's really the major catalyst as far as the Blackhawks go, because uh, as much as the NHL is a, is a similar, again, I, I've made a lot of comparisons similar to the NBA, obviously it's a team sport and this, but your elite players really do lead the charge and those are the legitimate difference makers. And you're you're going to win and die on the backs of those players. And so Taves and Kane stepping up to the plate has been huge for the Blackhawks' offensive success. Brandon Saad has returned to form, which is a big thing. Um, they've had a big year uh, on the blue line uh, offensively, at least from Eric Gust- Gustafson as well. He's really... Um, He's broke, broken out seemingly out of nowhere, and he's on, on pace for 60 points, so he's another offensive catalyst from the back end. And, of course, the Dylan Strom trade was huge because not only has he been, uh, not only has, has he been a great fit with Alex Dabrinkit, who he's already at 37 goals too, Yep. but on the power play, that's made the world of a difference because when if you're talking about the first two or three months of the season, the Blackhawks had among the worst power plays in the league, and that was when they had, um, uh, I believe, uh, Nick Schmaltz on that top unit. And he just wasn't clicking. And then, of course, you make that one-for-one swap for uh, Strom. And Strom's fit like a glove on that first unit. He's been tremendous in creating a lot of those crossing passes that have led to goals. And the the, the power play has been the biggest difference for the Blackhawks as far as where the large majority of their scoring improvement has come from. They've essentially taken what was a bottom five power play for the first couple of months of the season. And I believe since the new year, they they're tops in the league in terms of man advantage goals. So that's been the big issue. And and in that sense, there, there have been some good tactical changes as well. They, they used to run a three forward, two defenseman sort of set up which if you if you look into a lot of the hockey analytics research is quite an outdated sort of uh, setup. You want to have four forwards and a defenseman, and they've recently adopted that as well. So I think the biggest difference is a power play, but uh, having your elite players step up to the plate is huge. And then they've had a, a few young guys, Dylan Strom, uh, Alex Dabrinkit, really, st- really step up and take take massive strides in their development. And that's really what's led to the Blackhawks' offensive success. I mean, it's kind of unprecedented for this group because yeah, you said Tays like he is. A, he became their third thirty goal scorer this year. Um, Patrick Kane has forty one. Debrinket has thirty seven. Um, to add a little bit more to that, only two other teams have three thirty goal scorers this year. And uh, before I say who they are, who would you guess? Three thirty goal scorers. Hmm. Uh, I got to figure Tampa is one of them. That is correct. Uh oh, that's a good one. Uh, Toronto. Nope. Okay, that's surprising. Think about like a team that's just very young, top heavy, and mostly oh, offense. Yeah, Colorado. Yes. And then the third one. Uh, no, the, the Blackhawks. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. But it's it's interesting because I think we both know how we feel about Colorado, who is fighting. It's it's interesting that Colorado is on this list because Colorado and uh, Chicago are currently in a battle for a playoff spot. And both these teams are um, just eerily similar. Um, then obviously the Tampa Bay Lightning are living off their high-octane offense and um, figuring out the rest later. But um, I, I do think it's interesting how all these teams are built and that Chicago is um, where they're at. Do you think Patrick Kane has a realistic shot at the Hart Trophy or no? 
I think it's Nikita Kucherov's to lose, to be quite honest. The scoring pace that he's on, he is it's in it's nuts. Like I think he's on pace for something ridiculous like 130 points. Yeah, he's already at 111 in 70 games. It's going to be his heart trophy to lose. Yeah, um Kucherov is just an an insane person. So, um but it is good if you're a Blackhawks fan to kind of get these kind of crazy years um even now with Patrick Kane and guys like that. Um do you think Crawford's going to be okay long term? Is he still like the the concussion stuff is scary obviously, but do you think he is still their future in the net? Well, yeah, that that's the thing where with the Blackhawks that's going to be their challenge moving forward. I don't see a lot of immediate help coming through the prospect pipeline. And they're sort of going to live and die based off of how they do. The concern, though, with him is Crawford's now 34 years old. He's battled a lot of injuries. At some point, you are going to see um, a decline in his play. And if you do look at his numbers this season, he's rocking a 901 save percentage. So really something that we haven't seen out of Crawford in a long time as far as uh, below par play. He's a big question mark moving forward. Even if he is healthy, if he's not healthy, he's not someone that I'd be comfortable banking on um, one or two years from now even and uh, and that's an area where the Blackhawks really are going to have to address uh, I'd be looking to if possible and it's difficult because goaltending really is uh, we joke about it in, in the NHL it is sort of voodoo um, and the Blackhawks the best shot they really have is to hopefully you know similar to what the Islanders did try and sign a 1B sort of backup who who can sort of push Crawford for starts, who in the in a worst case scenario could take over as uh, as a starter. Perhaps they look for look for that through the, through the trade route. But definitely looking forward to next season, I'd be looking at some uh, reinforcement uh, between the pipes. It's interesting because they kind of remind me of it's the situation in Montreal where like when Price is healthy, um, he's just a different player and he's still a gigantic difference maker and he's obviously a great human i don't know if you saw that video with the fan um like a week or so ago but uh he's a good dude it seems like and then um he struggled last year but a lot of it was just injuries and i think crawford's the same way where it's like if he's healthy i still think he's gonna be elite for a while but um can you really bet on that especially when your window is kind of closing and you're not really sure what you what you do here um but would you if you were looking at their five-year plan or five-year road would you say they're on track for greener pastures or do you think this is still a team treading in the wrong direction over the next couple years and um their contention window is still relatively slim to none well i think really what you what you hope to see out of uh the blackhawks i think as long as you have jonathan taves and patrick kane still productive you're not going to be looking at a full tear it down sort of rebuild i think in a best case scenario you'd hope for a quick retool and and you look at what's coming through the system. I think I really like the Adam Boakfist pick. I think he could be um, a potential difference maker on the back end moving forward. For the Blackhawks' perspective, that Dylan Strom trade was a much-needed home run. That really solidifies their center depth. It gives them a legitimate number two guy moving forward. Um, on the wings, Alex DeBrincat has been a revelation. So I think they have a lot of pieces in place. Taves is uh, for the next few years, I'd be pretty comfortable with him as my number one guy. Strom's uh, by every indication, he's got 41 points in 45 games. He should be a competent number two um, center and you have to bring Kit, you have Kane. So the top six looks fair, fairly, um, fairly projectable moving forward, but it is the back end. How are you going to address that? Duncan Keith is getting older and his play is actually declining and so he's a sort of player where perhaps you do look to move on from him but on the other hand too who's who's really coming who's bursting through the seams to grasp that opportunity uh brent seabrook is obviously uh well on his way to um uh, he's largely ineffective right now and so the blue line is the biggest question moving forward how are they going to address that and that's really where you hope to draft and develop your guys because around the league you look each of the top teams in the league they draft and develop their own defensemen it's not like uh it's not like a second line center sort of thing similar to the storm acquisition where you can just go out and sign or trade for a legitimate top six player as far as top four defensemen go you really do have to uh, grow your own from within and, and for the blackhawks i think that's going to be their key to the to a successful retool how do they address the address the back end and i think 
um, to to sort of plan plan out for that. You want to acquire as many draft picks as you can. Um, volume's the the right approach to go. And w- when you do apply that, you're you're really hoping to unearth uh, an, an extra top four defenseman in the later rounds, and, and hope that that's enough to support what's up front. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, one of the last things I want to touch on tonight, we've already talked about Quinn a little bit, but there he's going to be making his NHL debut soon, it seems like. How would you drop him into the lineup? Uh, obviously, defense is a question mark right now with this Vancouver group. You've seen a lot of them. If you were um, running this team, how would you bring the 19-year-old along um, in his NHL career? Because it seems like he's been pegged as like a a guy who's going to be ready to go very soon that he'll be okay that he's been around his dad was his his assistant coach with the orlando seat what do they call the orlando solar bears yeah and um he's just been around it where he's just kind of grown up in this world that like those kind of things are just incredibly beneficial we've seen a lot of different athletes who've been around um the pros and just growing up in that environment like steph curry uh with his dad and everything like that it there is some added value of being ready for the show when you've been around it and you grew up around it and all that kind of stuff um do you think he is someone you have to worry about and bring along slowly or do you think they're gonna throw him um to the wolves right away I think as far as defensemen go in the NHL, when you're talking about teenage guys, you really do have to be cautious in how you deploy them. I look at Miro Heiskanen in Dallas as a perfect example um, of that sort of notion. Heiskanen was the, I believe, I believe third or fourth overall pick, uh, third actually for the Stars in 2017. And this in his draft plus one season, he's played on the Stars. So similar sort of the situation for Hughes. I know this is tech. Uh, or no, sorry, Heiskanen was his draft plus two season. So he spent uh, a year um, developing in um, in the top Finnish league. And but it is actually similar to Hughes. Hughes' circumstance because Hughes is actually one of the older players of last year's draft. And you look at Heiskanen, he was as mature a blue chip prospect as it comes. You talk about defense being a question mark for Hughes. Well, it certainly wasn't for Heiskanen. And Heiskanen with his size, he had a really projectable frame, I believe six foot two or six foot three. Uh, so really mature and developed physically, um, really solid two-way game. And, and he spent a year, like I mentioned, in the Finnish league. Um, it, it's it's a league that's actually been compared and, and prodded up as one of the top three or four uh, leagues in, in all of hockey. So a really high level of, of competition where he played against men. And he, in Dallas this year, has been in a situation where he's been great whenever in a sheltered role, but... When John Klingberg did get injured, he was forced up the lineup and he wasn't as effective. He struggled struggled a little, struggled a little bit. And that's sort of to be expected when you have um, an 18 or 19-year-old defenseman. And so in Hughes' situation, I look at what's happened with someone like Heiskanen. You do have to be cautious with how you manage his development. And uh, from my perspective, I'd look to try and shelter his minutes for sure at 5-on-5. Five five. He'll get his due on the power play. He's going to take over on the first unit, which has really been struggling for Vancouver. But perhaps I'd look to try and and this from from what I've gathered, this is certainly the direction that the organization is trending in as well. I'd look to try and, and play him with a more defensively responsible partner like Chris Tanev, someone who can be that sort of safety net, really strong in the defensive zone, uh, great anticipation, um, excellent positionally. And for Hughes, he brings that dynamic puck rushing element where those two could really complement each other and those guys could play perhaps on, on a on a sheltered second pair um, where perhaps they play a few more minutes, but the quality competition that they face is a little bit softer or even on the third pair if that's where it's deemed necessary. But for Hughes, I see a, a prospect who it shouldn't take too long for him to really leave a mark and, and, and be an impact player. And from day one, I suspect that he'll be a significant contributor on the power play at the very least. Where does he fit in the young guns uh, kind of upside of all the all the guys in Canuckland right now? How would you rank the exciting prospects in their pipeline? Uh, where does he fit in that group? Well, the Canucks, to be quite honest, after Quinn Hughes, they don't have really very many legitimate blue chip prospects, and that's sort of the question mark with the I'm rebuild. Even including the ones who are on the main. Okay, right now. yeah. So if if that's the case, then certainly he slots in, in my opinion, um, just a notch below Elise Pettersson's territory. Okay, and so Pettersson looks to be a potential top five player in the in the in the game. Um, and with Hughes, I think he certainly has the potential to be a top pairing defenseman. 
And in an absolute best case scenario, I could, yeah, I could see him being a, a number one guy who can play uh, big minutes at even strength on the power play and could run for, could take a run at a Norris Trophy here and there. So that's a really high bar. I certainly think, as much as I love Brock Besser and Bohor, but he certainly, he was certainly a notch above those guys. When will the Canucks arrive on the playoff scene and the contention scene? When do you think? What year? What season? That's the thing. It's it's really interesting because I'm not the biggest, I'm not the most bullish on the rebuild. I think they have a lot of those foundational pieces in place. But the issue that I see is they don't have enough um, of that second wave of prospects. So yes, you have Horvat, um, you've had Besser, you've had Petter, Pedersen. All those three guys have essentially been contributing at, at a peak level. Um, you have Adam Gaudet already in the in the NHL. Um, so most of your guys now with Hughes, Hughes in the mix, all, all of your top prospects, your best pieces are at the NHL level. And, and in the issue right now is Vancouver is still a 77 point team. And this is with the Western conference being as weak as, as it is, they're very far and they've had most of their high octane, um, impact. Um, they're, they're blue chip guys. The, the, the core pieces moving forward there, they've already arrived. So you ask yourself, when are those next uh, next guys coming, the guys um, in Utica and the AHL for the Canucks haven't been uh, very productive. And so that's really the question mark. I'd say realistically, this management group has said they want to make the playoffs next season. And if they don't, that there's probably going to be some sort of uh, change as far as the front office goes. But uh, more realistically, I think you're talking about a two or three year timeline for when the Canucks can realistically, realistically aim to make the playoffs they are really that far. And that even takes into account the fact that Jacob Markstrom has really burst onto the scene as a top five or 10 goal, uh, five top five or 10 uh, goalie in the national hockey league this season. Obviously we don't know if that's sustainable, but he's been outstanding this season. And you consider where he's at, where all the other young players have already are already at, are already at um, in terms of how much they're contributing uh, you really do wonder how much upside is left for this team. You're going to need a, an injection of more youth and talent within the next couple of seasons for the connection to really make some waves moving forward. Yeah, it. Uh, I don't think Canucks fans are going to be happy about this, um, that they might have to wait two to three more years with this group in, uh, in the playoffs. But it could be worse. You could be the Sabres, where you're just trapped, no matter what you do for the next couple of years, that you're just in the division of hell. Um, where you have the Lightning, the Bruins, and the Maple Leafs in front of you for the foreseeable future. Like, just what do you do there? I, I feel for those guys. Um, they're doing a lot of stuff the right way. They're making um, cool moves from on tour and everything else. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's weird. The last thing, and then we'll go. Um, I'm about to throw some bad teams at you. And I want you to rank them in terms of who you would like to see win the tank off for Jack Hughes. Our... Uh, our big, we're, we're the biggest fans of the Jack Hughes uh, variety on this podcast. Um, the Detroit Red Wings, 1-7-2 in their last 10. The Senators, 1-8-1 in their last 10. And uh, they've lost four straight. The Red Wings have lost two straight. The Devils, losing six straight. 25-35-9. They're 2-7-1 in their last 10. Um, then you have the Anaheim Ducks. Going three and seven in their last ten. It's unacceptable. Tonight they play, I think, Nashville. Um, so that should put them back in the loss column to get them back to on a two and eight pace per ten games. And then you have the LA Kings at two six and two. Um, it's a race to the bottom, and I need to know who who do you think ultimately wins the race for Jack Hughes, and uh, who would you like to see him land on in in that order of this this group of failure. Uh, how how would you rate it? Well, I think Ottawa is certainly the the team to go. It's their it's their tank off to lose. They, they're six yeah. points below Detroit, and they've depleted essentially all of their talent when they traded Mark Stone, Ryan Zingle, and um, Matt Duchesne. So they're they're completely depleted, and and the unfortunate thing is they don't actually even own their first round pick. So that's actually uh, Colorado is uh, thanking the lucky stars that, they, that they've that they got a potential uh, first overall pick there. Um, as far as who I'd like to see get it, um, first of all, Los Angeles and Anaheim aren't getting it. They get no sympathy from me. They've won, the, wow. they've won their cups. Um, okay. okay, come on. You got you, you to be – you got to understand Have my position. Have you watched the Anaheim offense this year? 
Have, have you like it? It's unbelievably bad. Have, I, I can't. Yeah. Ha, have you seen it. the Canucks the last forty years? They've <laughs> never won the cup. At least you guys have had your cup in 07. Same thing. Okay. okay. I think we can agree. LA does not deserve it. They they yes. won back to back. They were in the playoffs last year. You don't get to have this quick exactly. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. No. They they do not deserve that. On it, and even Detroit, like uh, they're they're the team that can most use a Jack Hughes. But they've been so good. They they had a dynasty. So I I just don't feel any sympathy for them either. Uh, <laughs> man, it's really hard because New Jersey was oh, they, they were the other dynasty in the in the late '90s and early 2000s. But uh, probably probably the the Devils, honestly. Interesting. The Devils wouldn't be bad. I think from a like I'm if I had to bet like who Batman wants to win the Jack Hughes sweepstakes, it's the Red Wings. Yeah. Like just the marketing of putting him there and i honestly i think it'd be good for the nhl to not have awful organizations uh get access to transcend transcendent talents for the next <laughs> tough, years tough, like Connor david and edmonton like you just you want to keep those guys out of toxic organizations so like jack hughes going to ottawa is oh, terrifying that would, that would suck and that's like if you had to bet like well, that's actually, that's not on. really a, oh, that's not really again a possibility. That's Colorado. Oh, right, right, right. Because Colorado has it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. I forget. And Colorado Ottawa doesn't deserve like it either. A billion picks over the next couple of years. Like Ottawa has assembled a war chest of picks with all their trades, but they still don't have the one they need to get Jackie's. That's there's some sad irony there. Um, yeah, Colorado doesn't need them either. Like, yeah, they, they've got the big three. Uh, <laughs> I think they've got that I extra think pick. Landed. The Ducks deserve him. I think uh, that's that's where he should go, and he can uh, become the Adam Banks from the Mighty Ducks movie that he was always meant to be in the NHL. I think we're gonna have to agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> I'm telling you, just watch a Ducks game, watch the Predators game tonight, and watch that offense. Like, I know they, went, they lost I, for like a month and a half straight, man. There's no offense. And, and the only minus of... 53 goal differential. It's atrocious. Would you like to guess who has more goals for this season? The Ducks or the Kings? It has to be the Kings. It is the Kings. It's everybody over the Ducks. The Ducks have scored 161 goals. Would you like to guess who's even close to that? Probably Ottawa. Oh, no. Ottawa. Here you go. 205. Oh, wow. That's actually pretty surprising. That's what I'm saying. The Ducks offense is anemic. They should rename the Anaheim Ducks to the anemic Ducks. Like, it's unbelievable how bad this offense is. I mean that's Randy Carla hockey for you. Yeah, it well he he's gone. So I really like. Um, at least you have uh, Andre Kasha. I really like him. Great, Jack Hughes should be a duck. It's done. I, I I've already gotten. I, I I'm just ready. I'm ready for Jack Hughes in Anaheim. So um, you're gonna have to get on board with it. Wouldn't you, would, would you want to see? Would you, wouldn't you want to see the quit? Uh, the the Hughes Bros in Vancouver. Absolutely not. You already had the brothers. You had the twins. Yeah, continue the, the the story, and we never got a cup out of it. So, no, but you had some good times. How long were they actually Canucks total? How many years? Was Since nineteen seventy. That's right, nineteen seventy. So yeah, next year's the fiftieth year. Fifty. No, I was. Jo- I thought you were making a joke about how long the oh. Dean brothers played on the same team. Together. Oh no no no. You're like, yeah, it's been basically <laughs> forever. I, I, I mean, think, that is um, true I'm... as well. I think they played 17 seasons together or something ridiculous like that. That's like one of those sports things that people just, if hockey was bigger in America, like we would just talk about like how insane it is that these twins played uh, just, I mean, these brothers just played forever together. Like how insane that is and that they just ran Vancouver and they're just, and they were just gone. Like they left in a very, um, I mean, I'm sure you're more, um, in touch with how that worked but it seemed like they kind of had a quiet boring kind of sad exit right well in in canada it's a it's obviously a lot bigger since hockey is the biggest sport but definitely in america i don't don't imagine that that would have made many waves over there you just like i don't know i feel like they just disappeared because they rumored retirement didn't they retire mid-season am i forgetting that no 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 it was right after the season i think they announced they were going to retire like towards the midpoint right is that what it was? Yeah, they, they announced it, I believe, after the trade deadline. So towards... right. they were just like, we're going away. Yeah. We're done. <laughs> yeah. And then I think I think the biggest thing is they didn't want the, the, this large sort of, you know, big farewell tour kind of thing. They're pretty reserved 
reserved uh, people. And so they, they had a nice send off. I mean, I think the last game in Vancouver was actually one of the most memorable, memorable games for any Canucks fan. They were playing against the Coyotes and they were down, I think like 2-0 and, and they made a comeback in the third period. And then Daniel Sedin scored the overtime winner. And that was just Rogers, Rogers arena went nuts. That was, a storybook type of ending for them in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, well, they had the best hockey middle names of all time, I think. Hans and Lars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are actually pretty cool now that, now that, now that I think about it. <laughs> they were always going to be hockey stars with their names. Um, this has been great. I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time, man. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here? Sure. Um, you can. You guys can find me um, on Twitter at Harman Dial Two at H A R M A N D A Y A L Two. I write for the Athletic Vancouver, as uh, you mentioned, and I also host the Game Three podcast. Um, for any of you Canucks fans, I don't imagine that there are very many, but in case any of you guys are out there, um, I do run a podcast on the team covering um, a lot of the um, a, lot, a lot of the nuances and and the detailed sort of um look at it uh really dissecting what goes on with the team and how we can project uh rebuild moving forward yeah those great things like uh them not being in the playoffs for the next three years that uh it's gonna get them excited oh yeah super excited you need to lie to them things are gonna be great really soon quinn hughes is gonna bring them to the playoffs next year i mean at least that is exciting to watch you're gonna see it, it, it might they might suck for the next couple seasons, but at least you'll have some entertaining hockey to follow. There you go. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. This was, this was great. You did a great job. You're a rising star in this industry. And uh, if you ever need any advice or help or anything like that, I'm always, uh, I'm always open to helping you out, man. I will have to do this again soon and uh, uh, good luck with everything. Thanks for having me on, man. You too. And that'll do it for today's episode of the chase thomas podcast i uh, just want to remind you guys if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on apple Podcasts or itunes i would really appreciate if you could take a second leave the show a five-star rating and a review if uh, you're not an apple podcast listener remember you can find the show on spotify tune in radio soundcloud stitcher uh, google play or wherever else you get your podcasts uh, be sure to check out chase thomas podcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often and also follow me on Twitter at chase double underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back in another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.